0: The time has come. It's been hundreds of years since Jacob first stepped foot into the rich pasture lands of the Delta Nile. But things have changed since then. No longer are the Israelites welcome guests, but now they're the permanent working force of the Egyptians. But when did the exodus happen? And how many people got out of town with Moses? Let's find out in episode 21, The Great Departure. Welcome To the History of the Bible podcast. The name of the book of Exodus means departure, as it describes the leaving of the Israelite nation from Egypt and going to the Promised Land. Many believe that the Book of Exodus was a continuation of the book of Genesis. In reality, it is thought that the first five books of the Bible are all part of one book, just with different sections to the book. It can be seen that from the first verse of Genesis and the first verse of Exodus that it could be a continuation of each other. Just like the book of Genesis, it was written by Moses and again just like the book of Genesis, many try to say that nothing in the book actually happened or that if it did it was written by many authors over many many years. However, based on the book, it is obvious that it was written from an eyewitness throughout the whole book details are given that would only be known by someone that was there. For example, in Exodus 15 verse 27, it describes a sort of oasis in the desert, and at this place it gives the exact number of wells at the location, and it even gives the number of palm trees there. This would not have been known by someone or by multiple people years later. In the book itself, it points to Moses being the author of the book. One example of the book being written by Moses is that when he would kill the Egyptian for abusing an Israelite, it gives the exact details of how Moses made sure that no one was looking when he killed the Egyptian and how he buried him so that no one would find the body. Another example of the details given is the burning bush. In this event there was only God and Moses present, so to give such details about what happened could only be given by someone that was there. It goes on and on about the details that only Moses would have known or written in the book of Exodus. Therefore, it was written by Moses somewhere between the years 1440 and 1400 BC, as it is thought that the Exodus happened around the year 1446 BC. The way that we get this date is based on the building of the temple. In 1 Kings 6 verse 1, it says that Solomon built the temple in the fourth year of his reign. That would be about 966 BC. In that same verse, it says that 480 years after the exodus that the temple was built. Also, in Judges 11, verse 26, it says that the sons of Israel had lived in the promised land for 300 years, which lines up with the date for the exodus being around the year 1446 BC. Other evidence has been found from the Armana letters that show a large disruption in Canaan that they blamed on a people that they called Apira or Hapira. This group of people are thought by many scholars to be related to the Hebrew word Ibra, which is a word that is the name for the Hebrew people. The thing is with this word, as well as the word Hebrew, is that it is the name of the descendants of Eber, the grandson of Shem. Eber is the line that eventually Abraham and later on the nation of Israel would descend from. All Israelites were Hebrews, but not all Hebrews were Israelites. Therefore, it can be difficult to know if they are talking about the Israelites. What also adds some difficulty is that the word Hebrew was often used to describe people that crossed over, referring to the Euphrates River, or in other words, they were seen as trespassers that came into the land of Canaan. However, both Abraham and Joseph were referred to in the Bible as Hebrews. Because of this, many scholars do believe that the Armana letters were talking about the Israelites themselves. Other evidence shows that the city of Jericho was conquered and destroyed sometime around the year 1446 BC. Now there is a debate about the Exodus happening in the year 1225 BC, but this date doesn't come from the Bible whatsoever. However, in Exodus 1, verse 11, it mentions a city named Ramses, which were the names of rulers of Egypt in the 1300s and 1200 BC, specifically, Ramses II. This is used by some to show that the Exodus happened at a later time period. However, in Psalms and in Exodus, it tells us that Pharaoh and his army were swept away in the sea trying to pursue the Israelites the II died of natural causes 47 years after the presumed date of the Exodus. It is thought that the reason it mentions the name Ramses as being a city in Exodus 1 verse 11 is because it was filled in with the name that was current to them at a later time period. This was not an uncommon thing to happen in the Bible. For example, the city of Samaria, it wasn't later on in Israel's history during the reign of the kings. That it was renamed to Samaria. There is some evidence that comes from archaeological evidence, but even this evidence date is still debated on. The main evidence that is used for the exodus happening around 1225 BC is based on three cities that were destroyed in Canaan. However, each one of these cities do not line up with Biblical evidence. One of the cities that was destroyed that is used as evidence for a later exodus is actually destroyed later on in Israel's history by Deborah and Barak, and it is thought that the other two cities were destroyed later on as well. Other issues with the later date of Exodus is that it contradicts the dates that are given in the Bible. Other evidence that supports the Exodus happening in the 1400s BC is that there are Egyptian discoveries that show that the Israelites were well established in Canaan by the late 1200 BC. The Israelites were very unlikely to be well-established in a land that they just got to only 25 years or so before. Therefore, we'll take the perspective that the exodus of the Israelites happened sometime in the 1400 BC. In the beginning of the book of Exodus, it says that in the first chapter that the whole generation of Joseph and his brothers died. Therefore, when the king of Egypt saw that the Israelites were powerful because they had been fruitful and multiplied, so much so that in Exodus 1 verse 7, it says that they became strong and powerful and filled the land. So when the king of Egypt saw this, he counseled with his advisors and wanted to come up with a plan to prevent the Israelites from becoming too powerful, so that if war broke out, that they would not join the Egyptian enemies. The plan that was hatched was that the Egyptians would place taskmasters over the Israelites, thus making them slaves to the Egyptian nation. But it says in chapter 1 verse 12 that the more the Israelites were oppressed by the Egyptians, the more they multiplied. The next best idea was to have the Israelites' midwives kill all the male children and let the female children live. But what happened? From the time that Joseph and his family first came into Egypt, they were the guests of the king. But now, they are the king's slaves. And not only were they slaves, under harsh labor, all male children were ordered to be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says that a new king came to power over Egypt. And this king did not know Joseph and all the things that he had done. Who was that king? And what happened to those that knew Joseph and all that he had done? These questions can be hard to answer, even to this day, because the Egyptian history doesn't present a full list of all the rulers and their dates. It has been noted by archaeologists that Egyptian records overlap and have dates that contradict each other. And if an event happened historically that put the king of Egypt in a bad light, it was erased from the history books. Some scholars are wanting a revision of Egyptian history completely, saying that it's off by several hundred years. What we can look at first is how long the Israelites were in Egypt. This can help out a little bit in explaining who may have been the king of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. In Exodus 12, verse 40 and 41, it says that the time that Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, and that on the very last day of the 430th year the Israelites were brought out of Egypt. There are two thoughts when it comes to the time frame that Israel was in Egypt. The first thought is that the children of Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years. This would be from the time that Jacob moved his whole family down to Egypt to the time that the Exodus happened. The second thought is that the 430 years is split up into two different sections. 215 years would be Abraham and Isaac and the last 250 years would be the time that Jacob and his family were in Egypt. This would be called the short sojourn. Let's take a look at the thought of 430 years being split up into two different sections. In Genesis 12, verse 1 through 4, God gives the promise to Abraham that he would make Abraham into a nation, and in 430 years, his descendants would come back to Canaan. And in Genesis 15, verse 13, God tells Abraham that his descendants would sojourn in a land that is not their own and be servants there and for 400 years they would be afflicted. A sojourner is a foreigner or an alien to a country, basically a wanderer in a land that is not theirs. But in two verses later, it says that Abraham will die in peace, but that his descendants would come back to the land of Canaan in the fourth generation. Taking this verse at face value. God says that 400 years of affliction will happen, and in the fourth generation, they would come back to Canaan. This is where the short Shodorn begins. When Abraham first received the promise from God, it started the clock of 430 years. The years of being afflicted for 400 years would begin 30 years later, when Isaac was 5 years old and they had their weaning celebration for him a celebration that was normally done around the age of five in celebration of the child making it past infancy. This is when Ishmael did something to Isaac that made Sarah want Abraham to remove Ishmael from the family, thus starting the affliction. From that moment until Jacob moves his family down to Egypt would be 185 years, making it exactly 215 years from the promise given to Abraham until the time Jacob meets Pharaoh in Egypt. The last 215 years of the 430 years would be spent in Egypt, which the Israelites would then become slaves. The reason that many believe that the shorter time period is true is because throughout Genesis it does say that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were sojourners in the land, which God did say that they would be. Also, another piece of evidence is that when God told Abraham that within four generations God would bring back his descendants back to the Promised Land. In Numbers 26 verse 57 through 59, it says that Levi had a son named Kohath. From the son would be the Kohathites. Kohath was the father of Amram. Amram had a wife named Jochbed, who was the daughter of Levi. It says that Jochbed, the daughter of Levi, was born in Egypt. Jochbed had at least three children with Amram, Aaron, Moses, And Miriam. Starting with Levi being the first generation to go down into Egypt, Kohath being two, Amram being three, and Moses being the fourth. The other thought on the 430 years is that 430 years was the total amount of time that the Israelites spent in Egypt. The reason that it is thought by many to be true is because it says in Exodus 12, verse 40, that the people or sons of Israel came out from Egypt. Only Jacob was called Israel, not Abraham. Also, when God told Abraham later on in Genesis 15 that his descendants would be foreigners, slaves, and mistreated 400 years, it is thought that it meant in those 400 years all three of those things would be happening. However, the scholars that favor the 430-year sojourn in Egypt point out that Ishmael didn't really afflict or oppress Isaac. Or that the hardships that Jacob faced with Esau or Joseph with his brothers would not count as the oppression that God was telling Abraham. But rather that they were just family issues. And in reality, not even the Canaanites and whose land they were living in oppressed them. But looking at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all actually prospered. It is also pointed out that God told Abraham that he would die in peace. And if Abraham's descendants were being oppressed while he was alive, then Abraham would not have been able to die in peace. It goes on to try to disprove the four generations of Moses by pointing out that in other areas of the Bible it summarizes or abridges the generations into smaller number of family generations such as in the case of Ezra and his family. It goes on to say that those four names of Moses and his fathers are just to indicate the tribe Levi, the clan, Kohath, the family, Amram And that the mother of Moses is just saying that she is a daughter of Levi, referring to her as just being a descendant of him, like Jesus being the son of David, but he wasn't actually the direct son of David, just a descendant. However, some scholars try to point to 1 Chronicles 2, verses 1 through 20, and chapter 7, verses 20 through 27, to say that Judas and Joseph's descendants went all the way to the seventh and eighth generation when Levi only went to the fourth. On Joseph's side, it went to the seventh generation, and it was Joshua that was the seventh. But this could be due to the fast population growth. Also, the other list of Joseph's and Judah's descendants does not have any dates along with them, but rather just names. Another reason scholars believe that the 430 years started when Jacob went to Egypt is because it doesn't stand a reason that nearly 2 million Israelites would come from 70 people within 215 years. However, even the amount of people that came out of Egypt is up for debate. On the other hand, why did God give one promise saying 430 years, and then another promise many years later saying 400 years and four generations? Those that believe the time to be 430 years in Egypt just say that God meant four generations of a hundred years, or that 400 years would just be a rounded number. Scholars believe that the word generation should actually be translated to mean cycle. Thus, it would say 400 years of four cycles. Another thing that isn't addressed by scholars that believe the 430 years in Egypt is in Galatians 3, verses 16 and 17. In Galatians 3, verses 16 and 17, It says that his promise was given to Abraham and his offspring. And then 430 years later, the Mosaic law came. And in verse 18, it says that it was just given to Abraham. Both sides have their shortcomings. For example, if 2 million people did come out of Israel, how did the population grow so fast in 215 years? Yet those that believe in the 430 years in Egypt aren't able to fully explain away the fact That a detailed list of four generations is given, going from Levi to Moses. Also, when God says that in 430 years, his descendants would come back to the land of Canaan, and then later, say, 400 years and four generations, it's just assumed that the writers were just rounding up and that it didn't actually mean four generations, but four cycles. Both of the sides of the argument could be taken. Unfortunately, the actual time in Egypt isn't really known. But one of the questions that keeps getting brought up against this short time in Egypt is the amount of people. Which leads to the question how many people did leave Egypt? In Numbers 1, verses 17 through 46, Moses did a census on the Israelites. The census came back that the men numbered over 600,000, not including women or children. Therefore, figuring that each man had a wife and probably at least two children that would place the total population of Israel around 2.4 million people. That's a staggering amount of people. And even though the king of Egypt at the time was worried about the growth of Israel, that amount of people causes many to question the numbers. 2.4 million people in ancient times would have made Israel a superpower. Many ancient scholars believe that the total population of Egypt was only between 3 and 4 million. And if the Israelites were numbering 2.4 million, it's hard to think that they were dominated by the Egyptians. Also, to have an army around 600,000 men is not really heard of in ancient times. Xerxes, later on in history, had a Persian army of only 200,000, and the Assyrians had 100 to 150,000 men. This brings up a problem. When the Bible says that the Israelites would face much larger and stronger nations than them in Canaan, that would make their armies even larger than 600,000 men. Another issue that comes up with the 600,000 men is that in Numbers 3 verses 43, it says that there were 22,273 firstborn males over the age of 1 month. That would make every 1 and 30 men be the firstborn. If we were to include girls in the count, that would mean that an average Israelite family had 60 children. And throughout the journey from Egypt into the Promised Land, numerous times God tells the Israelites that they are going to face larger nations and to not fear the surrounding nations and to remember that it would be by God's power that they would conquer the Promised Land. So, how is it that we get the count of over 600,000 men? Traditionally, in Numbers 1, Verse 21, the literal translation of the verse is, The tribe of Reuben were six and forty thousand and five hundred men. This would normally be read as forty-six thousand five hundred men were in the tribe of Reuben. In the Hebrew writing, the word elip is usually translated to mean thousand. However, in other areas of the Bible, it refers to groups, not actual numbers. Before and after the Exodus, that Hebrew word would refer to tribes, clans, families, and divisions. Another word in that verse that can be translated differently than tradition is the word and between 40,000 and 500. It's the Hebrew word vav. Based on context, vav could mean and, but it could also mean or. The verse actually reads as, The tribe of Reuben were six and forty lip, vav, 500. So, if we were to change those two words for the other translations and put them into the verse, it would read the tribe of Reuben were six and forty clans, or 500 men. That would mean the tribe of Reuben didn't have 46,500 men, but actually 46 family groups that totaled 500 men. Taking this translation and looking at Numbers 1 verse 46, when it says that the total count of men were 603,550, it actually could be saying 598 families with 555 men, meaning that the total population of the Israelites would have been around 22 to 30,000, with the average family having 8 or 9 children. This would make sense why the Lord was always reminding them that he would fight for them in the promised land, because their army would have only been about 5,500 soldiers. But this would mean that the translation of the verse would have to be incorrect. Also, another issue that the smaller population brings up is how did over 50,000 deaths happen to the Israelites from Egypt to the promised land? 14,700 died from one plague? 24,000 died from another, and 23,000 died after worshipping the golden calf. A couple of different things could answer this. The census most likely was taken after the 23,000 dying from the golden calf. The other plagues happened while in the wilderness for 40 years. The population would have increased during that time period. Another thing is that in Exodus 12 verse 38, it says that a mixed crowd left with the Israelites. It wasn't just the Israelites that left Egypt. Other people groups went with them too. So they probably weren't counted in the Israelite population, but could have been included in the death toll. This would go back to the time the Israelites were in Egypt. If they were in Egypt for only 215 years to go from 70 to 20,000 or 30,000, the population growth would only have to be between 2.68 and 2.86%. That isn't unheard of. But that still doesn't answer the question, who was the king of Egypt at the time of Exodus? Which one of the pharaohs wouldn't let the people of God go? And in the end, it ended up costing him his firstborn son's life, his life, and possibly the Egyptian kingdom. Join us next time in episode 22, What's His Name? as we go into who this pharaoh was. Thanks for listening to the History of the Bible podcast. We really appreciate it if you were to take a few moments of your time and rate and review the show, and be sure to follow it too. Also, tell your friends and family. If you would like to reach out to us to leave feedback directly, or to let us know how the show has impacted you, check out the links in the show notes. Until next time, remember that you are loved, special, and worthwhile.